Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans. We will begin in Romans chapter 7, verse 1, and read up to verse 17 of chapter 8. Romans 1, or Romans 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy And the commandment is holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, That I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And our text and the theme of the sermon this morning is taken from chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the to the Spirit. And after the proclamation of God's Word, we will voice our Amen together by singing from Hymn 35 all the stanzas. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, it wasn't that long ago that we celebrated New Year's. I know it's already past the middle of January, but I'm sure we can remember that. And at that time of the year, we often take stock of our life, and that's a good thing to do. We think about the things that have happened in the past, and we think about perhaps the things we would like to accomplish in the new year. When we take stock of where we're at and where our lives are at, it's, it's also important that we take stock of where we are at spiritually, and of course, that shouldn't just happen at New Year's. That should be a regular thing in the life of a Christian also not just before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It should be an ongoing thing that we take stock of ourselves. And, and of course, if we take stock of our own spiritual growth, that might, that might make us a little nervous. We read the law again this, this morning, and we read in Romans 7 how the law accuses us of sin. When we are examine our lives in the light of God's law, then it makes us aware of the sin in our lives. And besides that, there's our own conscience which accuses us. And when we listen to the accusation of the law and the accusation of our conscience, and then we're confronted with, with a rather unpleasant picture, aren't we? And when we look back at our spiritual lives, at our growth and sanctification, 
this past week, this past month, or even for many years, we might easily get disappointed, right? If you ask yourself, how much progress have I made over the last months, over the last years as a Christian? Am I a better disciple of Christ today than I was last week or last year? Am I growing in sanctification? And, and the answer to these questions can, can sometimes be a little disheartening, can it not? And that's because even though we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we remain sinners. And even though we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we also find it difficult to live by grace. Living by grace isn't something that, that comes naturally to us. And Romans chapter 8 verse 1 has got to be one of the most beautiful and comforting verses in all of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet our conscience accuses us that we have sinned grievously against all of God's commandments. Quote from the Catechism. There is no condemnation. And yet we're not where we want to be, are we? And that was the, the struggle of the Apostle Paul too, and it, it might be of some comfort to you, brothers and sisters, that this great apostle, this great missionary struggled with the very same thing, this paradox in the Christian life. There's no question, of course, that Romans 8 is one of the greatest highlights in all of Scripture. This chapter begins with, with no condemnation from the wrath of God, and it ends with no separation from the love of God. It's one of the central passages in Scripture that teaches us about what it means to be in Christ, to live in the Spirit of Christ. It's, it's a chapter that we should, we should all read regularly. And the important question is, of course, how does that relate to the things that we, that we just read in chapter 7? Because that's the great paradox of the Christian life. How can there be no condemnation for someone who doesn't do what he knows he should do, and does the things that he knows he shouldn't be doing. How does that fit into Romans chapter 8 verse 1? How do we live by faith out of Romans 8 in a Romans 7 reality? Well, notice, congregation, the chapter begins with the word, therefore. Well, not quite. There is therefore. There is therefore. And if, if you remember from English grammar, if you see the word therefore, you've got to ask yourself, what is it therefore? Right? You've got to stop and pay attention to that word. And Paul is making this great declaration in 8 verse 1 that in light of what he said, we have to pay attention. We can paraphrase it like this. Therefore, in light of what I've just said and, and, and what I've said in the previous chapters, in light of all that I've said, you need to know this. And what do you need to know? You need to know that there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He gets right down to the deepest depths of God's grace in one sentence. And so we have to be clear about one thing. There is certainly no contradiction between chapter 7, verse 24, and 8, verse 1. 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. There's no contradiction here. 
Now, some claim that Paul is talking here about his unconverted condition. Their argument is that only an unconverted person could say this, what a wretched man I am. But just think about it. Can that really be true? Can an unconverted person say this of him or herself? Will an unconverted person admit his or her own wretchedness before God? Well, certainly not, because unconverted people think they're, they, they don't need to be converted. They think they're good. They think that God, if they believe in God, that God will accept them the way they are, right? That the bad people, well, those are the ones in jail. Or my nasty co-worker, those are the bad people. But me, no, I, I don't have no need to be saved, right? That's how the unconverted think. But the fact is, it is only when we know and believe Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that we can say amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Only when we understand 8 verse 1 can we really understand 7 verse 24 because we're not capable by nature of going from 7 verse 24 to 8 verse 1. It's only when we actually believe 8 verse 1 that we can get to 7 verse 24. It is grace that opens our eyes to the fact of our own wretchedness. It is God's grace and grace alone that makes us realize how badly we need a Messiah and that our only way to be freed from our wretched condition is through the Son of God who came down to earth, who was willing to become a servant and a slave of men and to die for wretches. And that's why 8 verse 1 is so important. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. <clears throat> and if you think about it, right, how amazing is that? Given what I know about myself, how amazing is that? And given how I know what God knows about me, how amazing is that? Given that, I, that the good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil I don't want to do, I actually end up doing often. What hope is there for someone like that? Right? How can I ever get out of a mess like that? Because I wake up in the morning, and before I even put my, swing my feet out of bed and put them on the floor, I'm already in Romans chapter 7. And yet there's Romans 8 right there. Romans 8 is like this strong cup of coffee for my Romans 7 foggy brain. And we all wrestle with this paradox, don't we? The seemingly impossible contradiction. We know the accusations of our own conscience. We, we recognize the insinuations of the evil one, right? You're never going to be good enough. Who do you think you are that God will accept you as his child? Are you kidding? Right? We recognize that paradox that's contained in this. And now again, some people will say that the law itself is the problem. They say that what Paul is saying, really saying here is we have to get rid of the law and just live by grace. Get rid of the law and live by the Spirit. But that's a very superficial and a very phony way of reading these chapters. Indeed, all of Scripture. Romans 7 verse 12 makes it very clear the law is not the problem. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what is the problem? The problem is not the law, but the problem is sin. It is sin that seduces us. It is sin that deceives us. It always does. 
It deceives us into thinking that, that sin is okay and that the consequences of sin are, are going to be good for us. Right? Sin deceives us into thinking that, that what it offers will satisfy us, that this or that or, or this thing will, will satisfy us, will fulfill our desires. And sin is so deceitful, it even tells us that once we go down that road, it'll be good. We're able to justify these things. And sin tells you that, that if you go down that road, you, you might even be able to escape the consequences. But then you get to the end of the road and you find out that you slam into a dead end of consequences. That's how seductive sin is. And that's how it deceives us into heading down a road that, that leads to destruction. And so the problem is not the law. The problem is sin. But then there's Romans 8, which tells us that when our sin is dealt with in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Our conscience may accuse us. The law may accuse us. Right? And you can just imagine Satan accusing you too, just like he did when he accused Job. Right? Just look at them Christians. Just look at them Christians. Just look what they did last week and what they did on Tuesday and they did it again on Wednesday and they did it again on Thursday. And sometimes we're up, up to our necks in the swamp of sin and you have, you have a criminal record as long as your arm. But the amazing thing is, congregation, that that's not the information that comes up on the screen when your name gets called up on the heavenly database. You see, the, the Lord knows it, of course. He knows the facts. He knows your record of sin. He knows what you did last week on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. He knows the whole story. But that part isn't the whole story if you are in Christ. You see, what matters most to the Lord for His own sake is not your record of sin, but Christ's record of obedience for you. That's grace. That's who God is for you by His grace. He is the God who says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 43 verse 25. And yes, the law and our conscience, they tell us that we are weak and that we have failed and that we are guilty, that we are wretched sinners, and we say, yes, that's true. I am weak, I have failed, I am guilty, I am a wretched sinner, but when I am in Christ, I may also say that I am loved, I am cared for, and I am secure, and I am safe in Jesus Christ. How does that work? And when, when does this work? When is the gospel a reality? Is that something that we just hope for? Maybe a future reality? Something that, that, that we will reach someday? But then look once more at 8 verse 1. And notice the time frame. There's a little word. It says now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's not just a future possibility, but it is a present certainty based on the reality of what Christ has done for you. 
the reality of his atoning sacrifice for sin. It's nothing else than that. And Paul proclaimed this truth already in 5 verse 1, where we have another great therefore in Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in this grace. Because if it's not grace, then where do we stand? If we stand not in this grace, then we stand in condemnation. And if we're not justified, if we're not declared righteous on the strength of Christ's atoning work, then we're condemned. There's no, there's no middle territory, there's no middle ground. Apart from Christ, the Bible says we all find ourselves on death row. In Adam all died. Adam has brought down the wrath of God upon the entire human race. And we're all caught up in Him who is the head of the human race. And so that's, that's where we are. The reality of condemnation, that's not in question. But the present experience of the believer is not in question either. There is no condemnation because of what has happened in Christ Jesus, and that's happened for us who believe. And notice how often Paul uses the present tense in this chapter. Right? I don't do the good I want to do. The evil that I do not want to do is, is what I keep on doing. We're, we're so wretched we can hardly even get that straight in our heads. And because sin still dwells in me, he writes, but, but there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's present tense. No condemnation today. And then he goes on to write verse 2, that if you are in Christ, the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And verse 11, the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, and you too are alive through the Spirit who dwells in you. And then there are those well-known words at the end of chapter 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing. No tribulation, no distress, no persecution. In fact, writes Paul, again in the present tense, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And this present reality in the life of one who is in Christ is, is so wonderfully displayed in, in the life of the the one criminal on the cross who was hanging beside Jesus. And he said, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? In other words, Lord Jesus, somewhere along the line, when, you, when your work is done and when you come into your kingdom, will you please remember me? Think about me. And Jesus gave him a most wonderful answer, much better answer than he was expecting. Jesus said to him, today, today you will be with me in paradise. So the reality of what happens in the life of a sinner who turns in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ is a present reality. When we're born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, writes Peter, that is a secure hope, a certain hope. 
It's not the kind of hope that says, well, I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow. But it's a certain hope, a guaranteed hope, because it's based on the promises of Almighty God. It's based on the transaction that God has made on our behalf. Christ's life for our life. His obedience for my rebellion. His suffering for my eternal hope. He was rejected by His Father for my security, for our security, that we might become sons and daughters of Almighty God, of our Father in Heaven. And so we can be confident of this, that we are just as secure as the saints in Heaven. Their position is our position. Right? There is therefore no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ. Well, that's true for the saints in heaven, but it's true for the saints on earth too. Elsewhere, Scripture says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And this is how the Apostle writes his letters too. To the Corinthians who are in Christ. To the Philippians who are in Christ Jesus. To the people in Owen Sound who are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ too. And one day, we will be going away from here, moving away, and gathered into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, yes, then we will be completely free from the effects of sin, free from temptation, free from from the possibility of sin. But we still live on this side of eternity, and we live here in Owen Sound. And we're constantly bombarded by sin and the possibility to sin and the ravages of sin. And the law, which is pure and perfect and holy, and the commandments, which are righteous. Yes, they show me I'm constantly out of line. The law continues to condemn me. And if we're not careful, and if we forget what it means to be in Christ then we will be tempted to beat the law at its own game. Just like Paul warns against so often in his letters, just try harder and harder to win the game before the final whistle blows. But that's not how grace works. To understand grace means that we, we have an answer for the evil one when he comes with his accusations and for our conscience that accuses us. To understand grace means that, we, that when we recognize ourselves to be weak and failing and guilty, then the gospel tells us about the wonder of God's grace. The gospel doesn't tell us that we can try harder and harder and harder to win the game, even in the final period when we're down 10 nothing. But the gospel tells us that right until your last breath, You can rely on the grace of God because that's what it means to be in Christ Jesus. That, brothers and sisters, that is the wonder of God's grace. That a messed up creature like me, because of Christ, a messed up creature like me faces no condemnation. That is the wonder of God's grace. And of course, someone might say, as Paul also writes later on in, in Romans, well, that's, that's pretty easy then. 
Right? That's, that's, that's way too simple. That's way too good to be true. And, and if that's all true, well, then it doesn't matter how I live anymore. It's all grace. I can just go and do what I want. It's all grace anyway. Well, no, congregation, because then you have to keep on reading in Romans chapter 8 and 9 and 10. Right? And that's, Paul works that all out there. But in fact, he's already mentioned it in chapter 6, verse 1. That this doctrine doesn't give us a license to sin so grace may abound. Of course, humanly speaking, the gospel is too good to be true. Right? No human mind could have ever come up with the concept of grace. Something as fantastic as that. And if you really understand the gospel and the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ, then you do have to say it's too good to be true, humanly speaking. But the wonderful thing is, it is still true. But then we must never forget either that the truth of the gospel, that, it is, that is, the truth is that those who are in Christ are the ones who are righteous. All that Christ has done for us is of no value to us if we remain outside of Christ. And all that God has done for us is of no value to us if we remain outside of Christ. And that's why it's so important to know who we are. That we are absolutely aware of our identity. You need to know who you are. Because it's your identity that forms the dynamics and the character of your life. And if you don't understand your identity, that you are in Christ, then every call for action becomes a call to external obedience. Right? Every call to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and every, every reading of the law on Sunday morning, if you don't understand that you are in Christ, it's simply a call to external obedience. It will just feel like another call to fix your own problems. Improve your position. Right? A final call to win the game. But if you understand, I am in Christ Jesus, well, that changes everything, doesn't it? Of course, that doesn't mean that your sins from last week, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, don't mean anything or don't matter. But when you are in Christ, you are under God's grace. And when you are under God's grace, your sinful record is erased and you stand before God on the basis of Christ's record. One of the things that makes the Christian life often so difficult and a paradox is that we tend to focus on our own record and not on Christ's record. And we might think to ourselves, and how often is the Lord willing to forgive me? Like, oh, I mean, this is the tenth time that I did it this, this month. This is the 365th time I, I did it this year. How can I believe that He will forgive me again and again and again? But God never says that He forgives on the basis of our progress. He doesn't forgive on the basis of how well we are performing. Because if that were true, He would never forgive anyone. But God forgives only on the basis of His grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. On the basis of Christ's perfection. On the basis of what Christ has done. And yes, the Bible says we have to repent and believe. Repentance is necessary. 
And it's often our lack of repentance that's the reason why we're stuck in our bad habits. Because that's one of the sinful problems that still remains with a Christian. Even if you are a redeemed Christian, it's one of the things that remains with us. Our repentance isn't nearly as deep as it ought to be. If God depended on perfect repentance, there would be no such thing as a Christian. But it's still true. We're sorry, but never sorry enough. And we're sorry, but we're not sorry for the right reasons. Our repentance is never deep enough. And again, if God forgave us on the basis of the purity of our repentance, He would never forgive us. But He forgives us on the basis of the purity of Christ's work and not on the basis of our repentance. And and so we, we have to believe and confess that even when our repentance is partial and spotty, God still forgives. But if you are in Christ, then He will not cast you out of His presence. After all, you never earned your salvation in the first place, did you? And if you are in Christ, you cannot unearn it either. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's the whole point of Romans of Paul's argument in in Romans 7 and Romans 8. And so even when we find ourselves living in Romans 7, in this conundrum, we should not question our relationship with God. We shouldn't be thinking, God is keeping a record of my sins, and I I wonder if, if He's reached the limit. The Bible is clear, there is no limit to God's grace. None. There's no limit to His steadfast love. There's no limit to His mercy. Because if there was a limit to His grace and His mercy, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And so instead of doubting whether or not God is willing to forgive you one more time, you should be asking, what's wrong with the level of my repentance? What's wrong with the level of my love and obedience and dedication to the Lord? How can I improve on living a life of repentance? The limitlessness of God's grace and mercy should be our motivation to live a life of repentance. And so when you are in Christ, you don't have to be despondent about moving forward into the next week and the next month. Going forward by God's grace, we who are disciples of Jesus Christ, we continue to look for places in our lives that still have to be surrendered to His Lordship. There are still many places in which we give way too much ground to the enemy. And there are still spots in our lives that we want to hide. There's stubborn places in our lives that we want to protect. But by God's grace, we will humbly ask Him to help us to change that. And God never says no to prayers like that. The problem of sin, it remains. It stays the same every day. That problem won't go away tomorrow either, but God's mercies are new every morning again. And that's what we need to remember. And brothers and sisters, that is how we live by faith in Christ. In what we confess in Romans 8, that's how we live in a Romans 7 reality. Amen.